Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. We just had a full intro, and for any of you who are Patreon supporters, you are going to get a treat. <laughs> I'm going to put in the previous intro as the lead-in to the overtime bonus Patreon-exclusive episode, because I think everyone should hear that as raw and in the moment as we did, wherein a voice effect was unknowingly applied to Brad's <laughs> channel. I didn't realize that. And then I had this whole spiel leading into the episode, and, like, and then Brad spoke. <laughs> and the teaser that comes through in your voice where you can kind of hear it picking up as you're talking a couple times. Oh, God, that's good. That's the good stuff. Anyway, we won't have the we don't have video for the Patreon exclusive because just me and Evan looking at you like something's wrong. Yeah, it's probably not good that I don't pick that up <laughs> and I'm the one editing the audio. Anyhow, as I was saying previously, you know, there's an episode last season where it came after a stretch of really terrible Red Wings hockey. Like it was after, you know, a brutal December, which, you know, followed a really strong start to the season for the Red Wings. And they were just you know, god awful injuries. No one was playing well. Goaltending went out the window. And between episodes, all they had done is play terrible hockey. And I remember it was a really bleak episode. We got a lot of feedback from folks that said this was like, you know, anchors around our feet. Like there is no hope, no light at the end of the tunnel. It was good, substantial content. You weren't wrong about anything per se, but it was just it was really bleak. And I remember thinking back to that episode quite a bit and thinking, ooh. If you're a new listener, that wasn't probably the most positive one. And we probably should do a better job of, you know, constantly reminding folks that this is a twice weekly show and, you know, don't extrapolate anything over the course of an 82 game season. It's a long hockey season. But yeah, that was a really bleak episode. And last night was the only Red Wings game that was played between last episode and this one. And I have to say for most of that game, the Red Wings played as bad as they did during the bleak episode. So we're back. <laughs> it was almost worse in a, in a small way because the Red Wings have had really bad starts this year, so they've come back from a few deficits. So when it started to go off the rails, you still had the hope. Yeah. You didn't want to leave because you never know, and then it just kept getting worse and worse, and then it hit the point of, oh, yeah, this one's this one's done. I was talking to you before the episode, Brad, and I said, you know, call me crazy here, but... The Red Wings didn't look, you know, great against New York, but before those two power play goals that happened in rapid succession to make it 3 nothing, they didn't look like they were completely out of the game. It looked similar to when they were down 2 nothing against Boston. I mean, they were being outshot 13-1 to at one point. Yeah, all the details, you know. You're so worried about the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, this will be an interesting one as we cover probably the Red Wings' worst game of the season, but not just that. In any case, we're here we're going to do it, and we are going to make sure that it is better than the last, you know, hashtag bleak episode. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, folks. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and lots more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we are going to discuss the Red Wings' 5-3 loss, and that is a deceptive scoreline to the New York Rangers in Madison Square Garden. We are going to be discussing individual storylines from that game, you know, breaking down exactly what went wrong for the Red Wings, read everything. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about uh, individual players, you know, 
Is Debrink is slumping? What does Fabry's return mean? And goaltending. Goaltending is going to be a little bit of a theme for this episode, and we'll talk about, you know, are we approaching a turning point for Detroit's goaltending situation? We'll take a look at the standings, the schedule ahead, and what the lead-in to Detroit's Sweden trip means for them. And then we'll be talking about some league news, notably the Edmonton Oilers and their massive goaltending dilemma. So that's going to tie into Detroit's goaltending conversation that we'll have uh, already had at that point. And then what other NHL news comes up will just be subject to uh, what we get to. The net guard conversation, I know we haven't talked about a repeat of what we've already seen in terms of the scandal in Chicago going back to the Kyle Beach days and uh, whatever else comes up on the episode. Before all that, I want to let you know that this podcast is almost entirely supported by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to support the show, you get access to things like our bonus overtime episodes, which are Patreon exclusive. You get access to our Winged Wheel Podcast Discord as well. You're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. For example, we're giving away two tickets to every Red Wings home game this season, the vast majority going to our Patreon supporters. So again, Patreon.com slash Podcast. All right, the Red Wings carrying the excitement from their Winged Wheel podcast night at the LCA win over the Boston Bruins decided to go into Madison Square Garden and play what I think was the worst hockey they've played this season so far. Easily. They, you know, went down one nothing within, what was it, a minute, 40 seconds. And I thought, okay, they don't look good. And as you mentioned, Brad, you... They were being wildly outshot. New York looked substantially faster. They looked more organized, more poised, more of a threat offensively. Detroit did hit, I think, a post or two in that game early on, which a bounce here or there, and you might be able to kind of change the dynamic of how everything unfolded. But New York went on two consecutive power plays, and on both of them, it was a rapid goal. Like Detroit's penalty kill was just nowhere. And all of a sudden, it was 3 nothing. And then not long after that, 4 nothing, And then not long after that, 5 nothing, And it was a four-goal second period for the Rangers that put them up 5 nothing, And the game was gone at that point. We'll talk about Detroit's little resurgence in a, in a second. But yeah, that was, that was ugly. And it wasn't just ugly. It was ugly in all facets. There's not one part of the lineup where you can say this was the redeeming quality. It's, you could say, oh yeah, the forwards and uh, the D were awful, but the goalie held them in. It should have been much worse. Or, hey... Defense and goalie were doing nothing, but at least the forwards were generating a ton of chances. None of that was true. They were lifeless. They were, they looked unmotivated. They looked tired, which is a problem early in this season. You know, obviously they had some weird quirks like Fabry coming back and he was very rusty and looked very rusty. For, For me, the big story of this game though, and obviously it's the bigger conversation, but the starting point is goaltending. Mm-hmm. This was a bad game from Huso. The Trocheck goal in the first period, yeah, you don't want the team to let someone come through the neutral zone and gain the uh, the zone that easily, but that was a very stoppable puck. That's a puck that should not go in on an NHL goalie, and that's not the main reason. And, you know, some of the goals in the second, it's hard to pin all of them and go, you absolutely have to have that one. But every once in a while, you want your goalie to steal a couple from you. Like, that should have been a goal, but he got to it. Or that, you know, was a very, very difficult save. One that shouldn't be saved, but he made it. And we haven't really had a whole lot of those from Huso this year. And 
Yeah, like I said, the Trocek one was the one that probably bothered me the most last night just because the game was still tied. It was a weak wrist shot from distance, not a great angle. Like, it just can't get through. Yeah. You know, early on, I don't think Huso has had any absolutely lightning stellar performances or at least stretches of hockey like he had to start last year. So fully agree with that. I do think he had moments early on in the season where within the same game he had you know, an unreal stretch for 10 or so minutes or a couple of really key saves to keep Detroit in a game and then would let in one that was, you know, an average or below average goal. But that is about his peak so far this season. And in a game where everything else was in its valley, especially, you're right, this was Husso's valley so far. And the reason that's concerning is because we've not seen the Husso who's stolen games so far. Detroit has a, a goaltending question, which we're going to be talking about a lot this episode, but is his starting job in question. That's been kind of coming up over the past few games. It's not been an unfair question to ask, but I just felt it's been a little bit early. But especially after that game, I really thought to myself, no, this uh, this is now a question. And I'm wondering in what direction Derek Lalone's going to go. So more on that in a little bit. But yeah, absolutely not a good performance by Vili Husso. The special teams, 0 for 6 on the power play, including like a full minute, 5 on 3, uh, they allowed two of three on the penalty kill as well. Like they were not, they were as, as good as the rest of the team, which was terrible. Larkin played, he was banged up from the Boston game. Lalone mentioned that he was a little bit bruised. You can, I think, see that in his game. He looked off as well. And you're now getting to storylines like Alex DeBrinkett after his hot start, you know, going back, I think, what, six games to the Winnipeg game. He has one point in those six games, just one point in the Boston game. And now this is a really, really big cold stretch for him where he's not really done much. Larkin even, if you go back, I want to say five games, has two points in five games, and the two points came in the Boston game. Detroit's big weapons have cooled off, and you're seeing situations that we talked about in preseason where, okay, your best players aren't performing or they're in cold streaks, which is going to happen over the course of the season. How is your team playing? It's not even just that they're not scoring because they did get the the goals in the third period or at least some goals, but they're just not starting the hockey game on time. And not like 10 minutes late. I mean like a period late, a two periods late. They've gotten away with it a few times this year and come back and won a game or stolen a point, but this one against New York got out of hand and this looked like last year or the season previous. Yeah, it's... And the Red Wings had the luxury of their power play operating at a historic level for them and they could kind of power play their out, their way out of problems and last night it was bone cold so I don't know if it was a matchup thing as well and it, well it was definitely a starting on time thing but there was just it was just a whole lot of things going wrong last night and they didn't have anything to sort of bail them out whether it be Billy Huso, their power play their penalty kill but if we're going to talk about starting on time, it, it it definitely is part of the coaching staff's mandate to to get the players up and ready to go. And I wouldn't say this, that, that might be one of the most difficult things that coaches have in the NHL, which sounds outrageous because you'd think professional athletes would be ready to go, but they're still human beings at the end of the day. And you see it on almost every team from top in the league to the bottom in the league. Some teams just are anemic and cannot start on time. And I really... Hope the Red Wings can sort of buck that trend. And we talked about it last episode. 
last week the Red Wings had three games. They went two and one, but they were trailing two nothing at some point in all three of those games. That is now four games in a row in which they have obviously the Rangers score got worse and worse than just two nothing. But yeah, it's an issue. You can't live on deficits. It's good the Red Wings this year have had, you know, the will and drive to come back in those situations and to always make a game of it. And hell, they even kind of made a game of it in a 5 nothing game, which is a great trait to have. But I, I would say it's outweighed by the bigger problem of you're going down multiple goals every game because you sleepwalk through the first part of it. And this is, you know, part of the process of learning how to be a good team. It's not so simple as, you know, get the boys motivated and ready and, and get them in the right mental frame. Although, Evan's right. That is a massive thing in professional sports, and you'd be shocked and almost appalled as to how much that actually affects teams. But a lot of it will also have to do with scheme. You know, the Rangers are playing like one of the best teams in the league right now, and that has a lot to say for it. How is Detroit's, you know, offensive output, the way they create chances affect things? Prashant Iyer on, on Twitter has been putting out some really good threads and comments on, you know, how Detroit's rush-based offense is matching up against other teams and how they're stymied, like how Florida really frustrated them. And that's a whole rabbit hole that you can go down. But the adaptability and the preparation to get around those things is how you execute over an 82-game season. The good news is this is all sounding bleak and bad, and yeah, what a terrible game. It was one game. No difference if they lost 5-0, 5-4, 5-2 on, in the standings, and that's you know removing the emotional context from it. But these games are going to happen for every team. Good teams, bad teams, the Edmonton Oilers, whatever they are. It's okay. It's all part of the process, but this is now... It's not just about the loss. It's about the trends that we're talking about that we've seen throughout. So that's the part where a version of the Detroit Red Wings with heightened expectations, which is what they are this season, they've earned that. But with that comes responsibility as well. I'm doing my best to avoid the Spider-Man quote. They now have to find ways to buck the trend, as you guys said, and, and adapt. Now, in the third period, the fourth line, which was the small glimmer of hope for a few minutes there, actually delivered something and they kind of made it a game. Michael Rasmussen turned around, fired a shot, found its way in. Fantastic. They just needed that one shot to go in, and all of a sudden they're on the scoreboard. You wish it wasn't, you know, 5 nothing at that point, but that's okay. And then Clean the Dream, man, scores his first goal ever with the Red Wings. We, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. He has better hands than people give him credit for, and uh, he made it 5-2, and then Cop rushing down the other side. Uh, down the right side, fires one home, and all of a sudden it's 5-3. And Detroit did have some chances thereafter. Not too many. They didn't threaten a lot. They had the net pulled for a while. They weren't ultimately able to do anything about it. But to get from 5-0 to 5-3 isn't nothing. Like, that is a deceptive score. I don't think that was a 5-3 game on balance, but it is impressive that Detroit was able to produce. And it almost wants to make you pull your hair out. And the only reason I don't is because my hair falls out on its own. Because you can have a three-goal period against the great New York Rangers. So why waste the first 40 minutes? But I digress. Yeah, and it wasn't just that they got back to three nothing, uh, to within two goals, sorry. They got back to within two goals with time. Yeah. They didn't do a whole hell of a lot with it, but it wasn't like they shoveled two garbage goals in in the last minute that didn't mean anything. I think they had like six or seven minutes, if I'm not mistaken, to try to claw back from a two-goal deficit, which in the NHL is doable. Like we've seen teams do it in the final two minutes this year already with the goalie pulled. So, you know, an ultimately horrible game from them 
still gave them a puncher's chance at the end. And to talk about being disappointed with the offense, it's worth pointing out, this is all against Jonathan Quick. This was not against Shesterkin. Like, he wasn't even on the bench. It was Deming backing up Quick. Jonathan Quick was in net, and this is the... The disrespect from New York. I just can't stand it. I, I mean, they were right. Yeah, they were still, right. <laughs> he still had a sub-900 save percentage, and they won comfortably. Hey, the Rangers know if we're not parading out Jimmy Howard at MSG, we don't have a chance. <laughs> In any case, that was the game for Detroit. Were there bright spots? No, I, we're not going to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and say, yeah, that was a great takeaway and what awesome silver linings. But yes, Detroit did score those three goals. Yes, the fourth line contributed, you know, the two rapid ones with Rasmussen and Costin scoring 20 seconds apart. Yes, Vili Huso did get his first point, but that doesn't change the fact that he's not been good. It is what it is. That's the Red Wings' loss. Uh, Robbie Fabry returned to the lineup and looked like he has missed almost the entire season. That was as expected. They're discussing whether or not he's going to factor in every game as he kind of gets up to game speed, and that isn't, like, that's normal. Can I say something about Robbie Fabry? Eyebrows. Yeah, both of those things. He's, yes, he's injury prone. He is absolutely injury prone. No one is disputing that. But there seems to be this sentiment rising about Robbie Fabry where every time he gets hurt, folks are like, let's, you know, cut him loose, whatever, move on from Robbie Fabry or, you know, he's not going to be the guy and he gets hurt too much. I understand that the frustration with someone who's supposed to provide middle six scoring, which when he's healthy, he does at a reasonable rate, constantly being hurt. That's very fair. I, I do think, I do feel really bad. I think a lot of it's just like genetic and really terrible luck, but. I understand the frustration. What exactly do folks want to happen with Robbie Fabry? He gets hurt. He goes on IR. That's it. Detroit's not in a kind of cap structure where they can't do that and all of a sudden it's hurting them or whatever it is. Like they're not Edmonton not being able to put out a full roster because of their cap structure. Like Detroit is fine. Just put him on IR. Does it suck not having him in and producing? Absolutely. Be frustrated with that. But what do you mean move on from Robbie Fabry? Just put him on IR. What are we going to get a fourth round pick for Robbie Fabry, you may as well just keep him on the roster. This year and next season left at $4 million. It's a hard sell because he is so injury prone. Who wants to take on that con- take on that kind of money? And for what benefit? Yeah. Like, you're right. Like, okay, great fourth round pick. But then if he stays healthy for another team and he scores at a 15 to 20 goal pace and you're the Red Wings who have oftentimes have a hard time scoring goals, it's it's the frustration is very fair, but I laugh a little bit. I'm like, Where's just... the win scenario in, in moving Robbie Fabry? Yeah, it's crummy, but there's only really one thing that you can do right now, and that's just stick him on IR. Have you ever seen the $6 million man? No. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. You know what? I've, I have watched RoboCop, and I'm starting to think we're getting close. <laughs> you know what's funny is I think you have asked me that question four times on the podcast, and I every time you do it now, I think you're doing a bit because I say no, and then you repeat that line. And I thought you knew what we were doing, but I am now realizing that maybe this has been a one-sided bit. I'm actually not even a thousand percent sure I'm getting the title of the movie right, but I remember the quote. <laughs> <laughs> well, the comments will tell us regardless. hundred uh, percent. And the... I won't read them. <laughs> That's because again, folks, we can't read. That's Detroit's loss. Upcoming before next episode, Detroit has Montreal on Thursday night at the LCA, 7 p.m. Eastern, and then... Columbus, Saturday afternoon matinee, 1 p.m. Eastern, also at the LCA, and we'll be back with you on Sunday. So 
I'm not going to call this two, you know, winnable games or must-win games or anything like that for the Red Wings. I think we're still figuring out what they actually are this season, but they can't be New York Ranger performances. Well, the Montreal, well, it's becoming less important, but they're only they're only three points back with a game in hand, so it's 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 a measuring like and once you play everybody once in the, the division, then I think the measuring stick is done, but. This one's an important game. Where do you stack up against the team that was supposed to be last in the division? Because a lot of people will be looking at Montreal and Detroit and saying they're both pretenders. Yeah. They're both going to fall back down to earth. So the games against each other matter. I have no problem with Detroit coming in to New York and New York looking a half step better all game just because they're a better hockey team. They have more talented players. They have been better for longer. You know, they're more serious competitors for the cup, whatever. That doesn't always equal a New York Rangers win, but at least you can understand, yeah, that's just the balance of the, a Red Wings team coming up against a better, more talented team. The the results can't be as they were, but Detroit needs to go up against the Montreals, the Columbuses, and look as good, if not a half step better. So yeah, absolutely. Just took a look. Montreal's lost four in a row, so they're not in a great spot, but if I know anything on how the NHL works, when you start going on losing streaks, you eventually win. So you just don't want to be the Philadelphia Flyers of the world. The San Jose Sharks proved that. Yeah. We're all very mad at Philly right now because had San Jose lost last night and went in against Edmonton tomorrow night with the way those two teams are going, that would have felt like Game 7 of the Cup Finals with how desperate each team would have been. I the toilet bowl. But now we have the nice storyline of if San Jose beats Edmonton in regulation tomorrow, they are tied in the standings. That is <laughs> both the the first story would have been amazing. The viewing numbers of that game would have been way higher than they deserve to be, but the story tomorrow is also good. So it's too it's it'll be on past my bedtime, but I just hope I, I I'm a San Jose fan tomorrow night. <laughs> See? We can find things to laugh about even after a terrible Red Wings hockey game. Okay, let's talk about the Edmonton Oilers, and that's going to tie back into the Red Wings conversation. Part of the reason why they can't win hockey games right now, even if they have two of the best players on the planet, they're 2-8-1, five points through 11 games, they can't get a save. They cannot get a save for the life of them. They have Jack Campbell on a god-awful contract, and I don't want to say it's surprising because I think people saw the decision and thought that makes sense. It sucks, but it makes sense for the limited moves you can make. But Jack Campbell was waived, obviously cleared waivers because he has four years remaining on his contract at $5 million per year, including this season. And you're paying a goalie $25 million that has to be your starting goalie. And you have the kind of cap structure that Edmonton has. You cannot be affording to pay uh, a goalie much more than $5 million and have them be as bad as Jack Campbell has been. He had a good preseason, wasn't good last year, had a good preseason this year, and has just gone back to last year levels of bad. It's ruining Edmonton's what's supposed to be a contending year. And they are now back to, can we even salvage the season whatsoever? It looks like McDavid's playing hurt, doesn't really look himself right now. The whole team just looks out of sorts. Jay Woodcroft is trying to implement a defensive system that's just not gelling with the team, but it all goes back to the goaltending. So Jack Campbell's waived. Do they need help? Does Detroit factor into that help at all? What do you make of this? Well, there's a handful of teams carrying three goalies. So a team that needs a goalie 
is going to be keeping an eye on that. I don't know if Detroit's going to do anything about it because Detroit is in a divisional playoff seat right now. They obviously want the goaltending depth for a playoff run for themselves. They don't give a crap what's going on in Edmonton. They can fall off a cliff for all uh, Eiserman and Lalonde care. But everybody has a price. Now, I don't know what the price for a Rhymer or a Lion would be. It's probably not going to be that substantial. And the Red Wings are no longer in the rebuild phase. So, you know, mid-round picks probably don't mean anything to them. But if they get something better than that, yeah, that's something they should entertain. The only thing that throws a big wrench into this about how aggressive Detroit should be in trying to unload one of these goalies is the topic we already talked about. Huso hasn't been great this year. I don't know if now's the time to be getting rid of insurance policies. You know, if Huso looked like he did through six weeks last year, oh yeah, you're totally comfortable getting rid of a spare goalie because you he was playing great. And obviously Reimer's been good this year, so you have your comfortable backup. Get send Lyon to Edmonton for whatever the hell you want. But I don't know if they have the luxury this year of uh, comfortably doing that. They could absolutely do it. I'm just going to say comfortably doing it. Also of note, uh, Carolina is apparently keeping an eye on the three goalie situations. This is per Pierre Lebrun on insider trading. Uh, three goalie situations in Detroit and Montreal, both those teams carrying three netminders. It's Anderson is out indefinitely, I believe, with a blood clot issue over there. So they're also trying to keep their options open. I have to agree. I think a lot of Red Wings fans would be frustrated that they haven't seen Alex Lyon yet. I understand how they've gotten here. They'll carry Lyon through the Sweden trip. They're going to have to bring three goalies there regardless. And after that might be when you see Alex Lyon go on a conditioning stint. Ken Daniels has mentioned this on the Valley broadcast once or twice. They can get away with doing that. The league will approve it because he hasn't played in so long. They'll say, no, he has to go down to Grand Rapids, have a conditioning stint. It's not something that they can do in perpetuity to get away with carrying three goalies. Eventually, they're going to have to either make a decision or keep him and sacrifice the roster spot. But yeah, Alex Lyon hasn't factored in. And you have to imagine Edmonton is looking at all of their options, including, hey, there's a goalie that pretty much saved Florida season last year, signed for ultra cheap. For another season beyond this, that could really help us. But I have to agree, Brad, and you were saying this pre-show, Evan. For what return? Is it worth adding, you know, a, a middling return in terms of pick or prospect or whatever? I don't really know. Will you eventually maybe run into a situation where you have to let Alex Lyon or, or someone go for nothing? Maybe, because I don't think he clears waivers right now, very obviously. You, you have to jack up the price if you're moving him here. Otherwise, you you almost stay the course as frustrating as it probably is for Alex Lyon and some Red Wings fans. Edmonton has absolutely no leverage in this None. if they try to acquire a goalie. None. So, you know what? The price has to be so good you can't say no, a la the Philip Heronic type trade. I'm not saying Alex Lyon is uh, Philip Heronic quality, but... He's having a great season, Heronic. Yeah, but you know, when uh, you're in dire straits like the Edmonton Oilers are, you, you everything has to be on the table in terms of options. So, I don't know. Is that something you look into? Do you think Alex Lyon, just inserting Alex Lyon can save their season? I think there's an extremely large amount of negativity that's sort of started to entrench itself on that team. 
and trying to lift that team back into the playoffs is going to be a monumental task. Seems like they do this once a year. Like they look just so far out of it and they slip out of a playoff spot and you're like, oh my God, are they going to miss the playoffs? And sometimes it might happen, but more often than not, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl will be Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and they'll drag that team in through like eight, five games. And oh, McDavid had a terrible night. He only had five points or whatever happens. I still would bet on that happening because all they need is average goaltending. They're going to beat San Jose tomorrow 10 to 9. Whoa. That's great. San Jose gets nine goals or yeah. double their goal total for the season. <laughs> but what I keep coming back to for the Edmonton Oilers, and there is a, a Red Wings part of this goaltending conversation we'll get to in a second, but I keep coming back to is Ken Holland, it's not really a secret. His career is almost done, and it, that's on his terms. He's going to retire. You have Connor McDavid in your prime. You have Leon Dreisettle in his prime. You have done this dance how many times with both of them? The frustration is well documented. You are out of free passes. You're pushing your luck. You do whatever you need to do to make this year what it was supposed to be. You can still, it's still so early. You can salvage this season. If you have to pay a high price to shore up your goaltending and you find a solution, like if you told Florida last season, hey, you know, we have a solution for you. Pretend Alex Lyon wasn't on the team. His name's Alex Lyon. You pay someone whatever return, a first-round pick in the future. But he is going to get you into the playoffs and send you to the Stanley Cup Finals, and then from there what happens, happens. Florida pays that price 10 times out of 10. Yep. And I'm not saying that Alex Lyon's going to do that for Edmonton, and I'm not saying that that's even possible for them out there. But you, with the, the calculus of the team that you have right now, you have to take that chance. Teams go generations without having the best player on the planet on their Let team. Let alone two of them. Let alone two of them, yeah. You have to... You have to do it. You have no other choice but to take this chance. Teams work so tirelessly, rebuilding, having really delicate cap structures, being really careful with how they deal their their prospects and their pick assets just to be in the position where they can then splurge and spend it all in one place to try to fix a problem and plug a hole fast because you you need to win now. That's what it's all about. You know, rebuilding and, and the cap structure and all that, that's not just so you can be perfect, steady ship all the time. Sometimes you have to put the pedal to the floor and that's either to you know put your foot on the opponent's throat or to get yourself back in a position to score and Edmonton and my they have to do something here because they're going to run out the clock and all of a sudden they're going to see a once in a generation or team lifetime opportunity go away from them the funniest part about this to me and not to you know beat a dead horse it's a good thing the Oilers have the most patient GM in the NHL yeah like at some point, you have to not be, you know? The dry settle and McDavid do not have a lot of term left on their contract. The window is very clear right now. They are not built well for this window either. They have McDavid and dry and then a prayer. The goaltending being as bad as it is is inexcusable. You can understand having to sacrifice some forward depth because you're paying... McDavid and Drysaddle, $20 million, and Nugent Hopkins, and we're not going to get into the Darnell Nurse thing, but you can understand it. Mm-hmm. Okay, do we need a super potent third line? No, because our first line is going to score a billion goals. Fine. The defense, it's okay, but it's not full of stalwarts. Again, you have the two nuclear weapons up front. It's fine. 
If you have two guys who can score 130 points each and a goaltender who can put up a 915, you can win a cup. Teams have done it before. The depth has to be adequate. The defense has to be sound as a team. And the goaltending has to be good. The Oilers are not checking any of the boxes of what you need behind a McDavid and a Dreisaitl. The Oilers didn't really do it. These problems began to exist last playoffs, and they didn't do anything in the offseason to address what was starting to sort of bubble to the surface. I guess maybe they just thought their goaltending core would, you know, continue to improve or bounce back, but that is obviously not the case. It's, uh, you know, what being trying to put yourself in the shoes of an Edmonton fan is send shivers up my spine. Because I could, it's Edmonton, could yeah. you imagine if just imagine us being an Edmonton Oilers podcast right now? <laughs> it wouldn't be calm. <laughs> oh, we would make Steve Dangle look downright sane. <laughs> I would be straight up bald. Well, I would have nothing left. <laughs> I might be too. <laughs> because the thing is with Edmonton, it's they're in this position because of a death by a thousand cuts, but each cut is pretty damn deep. You know, the Darnell Nurse contract, awful from the day it was signed. The lack of depth on forward has not been, like, it's not a new issue. This has been something people have been screaming to fix for years. It was written about in The Art of War. The Edmonton Oilers have no depth. The goaltending has been an issue for a while. The minute the Jack Campbell contract was signed, everybody's like, wow, that's a lot to give a guy who had half a good year in Toronto. Mm -hmm. These are obvious mistakes, and they're repeated mistakes, and the accumulation of them is... Dry Saddle and McDavid being on an island. Yes, they got Nugent Hopkins at a really good AAV, and the back half of that's going to suck. Who cares? They're in their window now. Perfectly understandable contract. And the same thing with Zach Hyman. You're not going to probably love the last couple of years of that, but it's a really good contract. The Oilers' top six is phenomenal, but it has been for a while. Those have never, that's never been the issue. What is it with Canadian hockey markets having. Issues that are so old, they're literally written in stone outside the arena practically and just never correcting them. And you know what? Credit to Vancouver because, you know, they're usually at the head of that issue and they're having a phenomenal start to the season. I don't trust how long this is going to last because at the end of the day, I still think Vancouver, dysfunctional Canadian market will always run headlong into the same issues that they never fix. It's this thing that plagues them and it really kind of... uh, shows you how significant and tangible the hyper focus of Canadian hockey markets is like it drives the way this team is run to their core insane like how entrenched and integrated that team is into the the fan base and how the media is just tuned up to 15 it does affect the team affects them on the ice it affects them off the ice and I don't know to me this Edmonton thing is like yeah this isn't new it seems I don't want to say avoidable, like, oh, there's X, Y, and Z that you could have done. That's an easy solution. It's hockey. A billion moves could be made that can get you to the right place. It's it's not about that. It's you avoid the mistakes. So Mike McCurdy always says, like, hire me, and I'll just stand in a room and tell you, don't do that. Well, it's you add to the fact that everything we already said, the Oilers have not had cap space in forever, too. They, they had games this year. They could not ice a full lineup because they did not have enough cap space to actually put that many players on the roster. And then when they do get cap space, they allocate it poorly. Yeah. Should all that money have went to Jack Campbell of everybody who is available? No, it was a bad idea then, and it's aged worse. 
Would they have been better to just let Darnell Nurse walk or give him nine and a half million? They should have got rid of him the second his request started with anything higher than an eight. They're tough decisions and teams. Now, this is not a uniquely Ken Holland thing. No. GMs are petrified to let good players go if they're, you know, they'd rather overpay him by $2 million than lose them, which you can understand that to some degree. Which is sometimes the move. Sometimes, yeah. But when you're as cap-strapped as Edmonton is, that's something, a decision you have to make. Maybe you work out a trade, you get a defenseman in return that's not as good. I don't know. There's options. Winnipeg just did the same thing. A team that desperately needs to enter a rebuild just extended Hellebuck and Shifley for eight years Yeah, when they're about to turn 30. Again, not a unique problem. Look at what Calgary did with Huberto and Uyghur and Kadri. Very common problem. But again, every decision they've made behind their top six forwards has been a disaster. The best front offices know what they've got in a player and they make the right decisions based on that information. The teams that are perennial, mushy middle or can't get it done are the ones who just don't know what they've got, a la Darnell Nurse, a Seth Jones. They just... Yeah, is this player good right now? Yeah, I would. This player is good, but are they going to be good when we need to win? They think that that's a yes, and everyone else is like, I don't think that's true. But they are stuck in their ways, and they think this player is part of the core, and they make a bad decision. And Edmonton is one of those teams. Hockey, in terms of its management, and this is true. Anyone who's been anywhere around the sport will know this to be true. Is dictated by arrogance. As much as it's a copycat league, think of how much arrogance there needs to be to watch the way Vegas has operated and think, we don't need to be as ruthless as them. You don't need to be as ruthless as Vegas, maybe. They have quite the reputation for being maybe too ruthless, but Vegas has been cold, calculated. They've been, you know, they've bent where it made sense to bend. Look how they got Jack Eichel, but they've also stuck to their more or less rigid guidelines and boundaries for what they think they need to do to balance, yes, we need good players, and yes, we need good cap structure to allow us to splurge on the Jack Eichels when they come. And they won a cup, and they now look like a favorite to win the cup again this year early on. And the arrogance from people who have been in the game for a long time to think, ah, you just had good players, and then you see where you go. Obviously, that's that. in general, that's what any GM will describe their job as, but... You know, when you see the GMs and the organizations through different regimes do the same thing over and over and over again, I'm sorry, plain and simple, it's arrogance. And that's why there's this constant cry for fresh blood in the NHL in terms of the management space and, you know, get some new thinking in. Because if you're a team that's not doing that, other teams are outmaneuvering you. It doesn't mean younger is better. It doesn't mean analytics always equal good. And it doesn't mean, you know, uh, if someone who's never played hockey in their life will do a better job than ex-NHLers there's not a perfect formula for it but if other teams are adapting to a modern NHL with a modern salary cap structure and you know uh, the way players have agency over themselves no pun intended uh, that they haven't had in the past and you see what Vegas is doing they're running circles around you then yeah if you're the Edmonton Oilers and you're running yourself like the Edmonton Oilers of decades ago you're screwed plain and simple you're screwed fundamentally your attitude towards the game and how you manage your team is you're in the dirt yeah, and there's so many different facets that lead to an excellent team, and some teams lean on their strengths a lot better. You know, 
if Edmonton had drafted a little better and got someone in a third or fourth round and they turned into a stud defenseman mm-hmm. or they got a goalie that they took in the fifth or sixth round and they turned into, you know, a Vesna caliber goaltender. Like there's all these sorts of things, but you, you there is an aspect of luck that's required in yeah. the NHL more so than other professional sports. Red Wings fans know all about that. Yeah, yeah, we certainly do. At the end of the day, it's all about the fans because they're the ones paying all the tickets. They're buying all the jerseys. They're the ones who are supporting these teams. And I I, I do feel bad for... There are tons of fan bases I do not feel bad for at all. But for Edmonton this year, when you know you have two generational players who can't get this team off the ground, it it's tough sledding. Well, Ken Holland, if you're listening from your good friends at the Winged Wheel Podcast, just pay a high price and acquire one of Reimer or Alex Lyon. Let's actually talk about those guys. I know we went on a big tangent, and that was us redirecting the, the doom and gloom towards Edmonton rather than Detroit. So you're exactly. welcome. But Detroit now has, I think, over the next season, you're going to have to figure out what's going on. You have Vili Huso who is signed as your starter and I think ultimately has the talent to still maintain starter status in hockey town. I think if you made me bet right now, I'd say, yeah, he'll get it back. Every goalie slumps, whatever he signed for $4.75 million a year for this season. And next Reimer signed for just this season at 1.5 million and Alex Lyon signed for a very, very, very affordable 900,000 for this season. And next Huso has a modified, no trade clause, 10 team, no trade list. And uh, James Reimer, who's a 35-plus contract, has a seven-team no-trade list. That's your maneuverability. You have three goalies. You have Edmonton, who might need something. You have Carolina, who might need something. You have other teams who come up between now and the trade deadline who might need something. What do you do for Detroit? Who hangs around in net? Is Huso going to save that starting spot? What's the plan here? How does this play out? Well, the thing I don't like about this is we don't have enough information to give an answer. We haven't seen Alex Lyon yet. We don't know because in a perfect world, it's Huso on Lyon because they're both under contract for next year. And Lyon's a little cheaper than Reimer. That is the best case scenario. But Reimer's been good so far this year, and we don't know what Alex Lyon is. So right now, the answer has to be Huso and Reimer. Then he's a UFA. Is he even going to come back? So it's a really, really weird and unique situation right now with the three goalies and how their uh, contracts are structured relative to their play. So I almost don't even want to give a firm opinion on this until we see Alex Lyon in some NHL games this year. For me, you do absolutely nothing at this exact moment because you don't... The Red Wings are in a playoff spot, so you don't tinker with that at least from a goaltending perspective, unless it really falls off the, the cliff like, uh, like like Edmonton. And the other thing is, Alex Lyon's not set up for success right now. He hasn't played this season. He's going to have to go on a conditioning stint to get back into the swing of things. Then he's going to come into an NHL game, hopefully against a tired team at home so the Red Wings can get matchups. And they're going to have to ease him into this. So... You know, if if I was the Red Wings general manager, I'm doing nothing right now because the Red Wings are in a good spot with what they've done. I'm just I'm just thinking about the kind of backstop that they could have. Like you could add a few points on the board if you get the Vili Huso at the start of the season that you had last year. And I know every team can say that. Oh, if my goalie was doing great, you'd add points on the board. Jeff Merrick had a something he's been saying, and I'm gonna butcher this, but 
a good goalie is 70% of your team when he's playing well and, and a bad goalie is 100% of your team when he's playing poorly. Whatever that. Essentially, like everyone needs a good goalie, but when they're bad, they're going to sink you. I don't think Huso's been bad, but he's not been good. And so for a team who's on the fringes of being a, a actual solid, like, yeah, this is a playoff team, good team, where Detroit is in and out of that window on any given game. Uh, yeah, I have to agree. You want to see more information. I know it's easier said than done, but you want to cycle those goalies in to see if you can't find something to to stick. For me, you know Vili Huso can be better. So I think you work within with your goalie coaches to you know, push them through this slight you know, underperformance to start this season. I, I have no issues with Vili Huso. I, I think he just needs a little bit of time. And obviously... Like Chris Osgood said uh, at the meetup, you know, the, the days of goalies playing 60, 70 games are over. I I think Huso's number is somewhere f- around 50 games. So he's got lots of time to to get into great form, and, and we know he can do it. Yeah, that honestly could be an advantage as well. Like you, you save the legs for later in the season and thus Huso's not being asked to shoulder as much. It is concerning because I think they keep saying they want Huso to shoulder as much as he did last season, but that very obviously didn't work out. So if between Reimer and Lyon, they can offset that a little bit, that'll be good. Okay, that's the goalies. That is a mix between Detroit and Edmonton and back to Detroit. Let's get into some league-wide conversations uh, very quickly here. Part of the fallout from the tragedy uh, on ice um, passing of Adam Johnson over in the U.K., Neck guards are now a conversation. And we've had some folks ask us, and we haven't raised the topic as a, a main topic on the show. We all grew up playing hockey. Various levels of equipment has been mandated through minor hockey and then whatever levels of junior you played. Where are you on neck guards? Should they be mandated? Is Are we going to see an increased adoption of them? I know when I first started playing, when I was a little kid, you had the neck guard that was the part, obviously, that went around your neck and then had like the bib mm-hmm. tucked into your jersey or, or whatever. And then you had the ones that were just the neck part. And then we, when Kevlar became more integrated into clothing, you had essentially like the turtlenecks, which yeah, was, it was like Under Armour started creating them and yeah. people would wear sort of, it was like a turtleneck. Yeah. Yeah. And as long as I played, I always wore that. That was my base layer. And then it had the neck guard integrated and that's what I wore. I went away from the big clunky neck guard because it wasn't as comfortable. And the function of a neck guard isn't to stop, you know, a slash uh, from a stick or a puck hitting your throat from hurting you like that's going to happen no matter how thick the neck guard is realistically could stifle it a little bit but it's cut protection and that's what it's meant to be and i'm surprised that before this you didn't see the turtlenecks as much but i think that's what people are going to go to now yeah that's what uh i think at least it looked like what wallman and oshi and tom wilson were wearing was the the shirts with the neck guard integrated it's what line is worn forever yeah yeah except his is his own thing but you know, point stands, uh, you know, to me, it's always been crazy that neck guards aren't mandatory, uh, in the wake of this, I know the U S has very lax, uh, neck guard rules. Like even in minor hockey, it's not mandatory, which is bonkers to me. And cause it's always been mandatory in minor hockey in Canada, but even all the junior leagues and top level junior leagues in Canada have mandated it since the, uh, some of them already did, but the ones that hadn't yet have now put it in place. And you know, I, I understand the discomfort uh, of it, and people will say, I'm not used to it. I don't like it. It feels weird. 
baby talk. Uh, if it's uncomfortable, who cares? Do you know how many parts of hockey equipment are uncomfortable? Like you get used to it. The mm-hmm. first time you ever wear shin pads or elbow pads, it feels weird. And then you get used to it. Especially some of the neck guards now, like with the Kevlar that are really thin and soft. You don't, you can't tell me those are driving you nuts. And, you know, ever since the incident, we've already, I've personally witnessed a huge uptick in sales and neck guards and cut resistant socks and, you know, the cut resistant uh, wrist guards. People are acutely aware of it now. And I think it's only a matter of time. I, I understand that the NHLPA gets a say in this, but. It does not affect their ability to play the game, and it could save a life. So to me, it it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, visors, helmets, if you want to go further back, all of that were much, much, much bigger changes in terms of a material difference to how you play the game. Neck guards, to me, I I can understand. Like, if I had to go back out on the ice and wear, you know, uh, an old-fashioned neck guard that I had when I was a little kid, I'd feel it. But if that was the only option for one reason or another, you'd still wear it, and they'll adjust. I think this, I think you're right. It's, I don't even think you'll see a lot of pushback. I think a lot of the players who've been vocal about it have been, you know, they saw what happened and they thought, yep, I can make this change and get used to it. Someone said, oh, visually it doesn't. Oh my God, please. If we can have ads on jerseys, you can deal with players wearing turtlenecks. Ads on neck guards? Uh, Hell yeah, let's go. Oh God, I actually think you're right. I actually think that's going to happen. It's right at their face level. You know, you're looking at Sidney Crosby, and there it is right there, the Shane Pinto betting app right across (laughs) his neck. Yeah, if we had to watch the Vegas Golden Knights wear those stupid scarves while lifting the cup, I hated those so much. When have NHL players ever worn scarves while they're celebrating? It's the hats. They get the hats. That's it. Stop. You cannot put an ad one more place, NHL, please. But thank you for making the joke, Evan, because now neck guard ads are coming and My it is God. absolutely your fault. Hey, you guys want a salary cap world? That's what we got to oh do to keep the salary God. cap going up. You know what? Nobody loves pleasing the shareholders more than Evan Lobsinger. I'll tell right. you that. That's you want right. to know why? Because Evan is all the shareholders. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how he can afford everything, his luxurious billionaire lifestyle. Not much conversation to be had about this one because it's just another sad reality of you know, what's going on in Chicago, but there is yet another lawsuit against the Chicago Blackhawks, another ex-player, a a Black Aces teammate of Kyle Beach, uh, also alleges sexual assault from their former video coach in 2010. The story is, as anyone with a brain could have told you before, bigger than just what was publicized because Kyle Beach's, you know, bravery in coming forward. Very obviously, uh, Aldrich didn't just do this to one person. And so um, the details are sickening. And it just makes you just makes you shake your head and and really kind of double down on, wow, the NHL really did. I don't want to say they did nothing about this because people have ostensibly lost their careers, although it remains to be seen if they'll be back in. Think of Stan Bowman, Joel Quenville. The whole thing is just so, you know, forgive me, but bullshit. Like, it's just bullshit. So I imagine this one, because it's a lawsuit, is just going to be a byline that's not going to be as big a story as the first one, but it's worth calling out that that's, uh, that's not over, and it's sad and, and pathetic. Okay, why don't we transition here to overtime? 
where we take questions and comments from our fans and listeners and stump Evan. Overtime is our segment where folks get to ask whatever they want to ask and is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. Again, if you want to support the show, it allows us to run this show, host winged wheel podcast nights at the LCA, uh, expand into further content like Expected by Whom, a show hosted by Prashanth Iyer and Sean Shapiro. It allows us to support the Jamie Daniels Foundation and do lots, lots more. So again, patreon.com slash podcast. You get access to the Discord. You get access to the bonus overtime episodes. You're automatically entered into the giveaways. Think of the season tickets and lots more. Uh, let's take some comments here from our patrons. Let's start here with Garrett Miller. This is an interesting one because I don't think there's an easy answer. It says, who will be the first Red Wings 100-point player from here forward? And why is it Joe Valeno? Thank you for answering my very reasonable level-headed question. So other than Joey V, the obvious answer, but in all seriousness, who would be the first Red Wings 100-point player from here forward? They've obviously have had them in the past. Dylan Larkin. You think he can reach the plateau? That's the only one on my mind. First answer that came to my head is they are not in the organization yet. That was also my other one. <laughs> I could see a world where the offense completely pops off, like goes nuclear. Like think the start of the season stretched over most of the year. And I could see DeBrinket or Larkin flirting with it, but it also has to come with further increases in league scoring, I think. I think it could happen, but I think the more likely answer is Brad's, that they're not in the organization yet. Well, that's not good. <laughs> no, no, it's certainly not. Simon says 27 uh, says, I don't quite understand the signing and usage of Jeff Petrie. I could be wrong and tell me if I am, but I would argue that Edvinson and Berggren should be called up for the Sweden trip. I think the impact of them playing in their home country could have a significant impact on the score sheet. First and foremost, I think everyone has been surprised by just how poorly the Jeff Petrie signing has gone. I don't think anyone was expecting him to be like out of this world bonafide top four pairing guy but at the cost and what he's able to do still at his age you thought you could shelter him put him on third pairing minutes be a veteran presence and he's just he's had his couple moments here and there but plain and simply he's not been good this year and it sucks to see and i'm really starting to think the same thing about edvinson is at this point i will take the mistakes from edvinson over the mistakes from petrie or whoever else and if it means carrying 7d carry 7d go 11 and 7 we've seen that the team can do it I'd rather that at this point. The say, What was the one saying we use constantly in the rebuild? I'd rather see the young players who might be bad versus the old players who are bad. Yeah. People are a lot more forgiving on young players who make mistakes than the people you bring in on this facade that their veteran presence will steady the ship and they'll show guys how to play the right way and then that's what you get. Yeah. So I'm an Edvinson guy. Yeah. he's. Look good in Grand Rapids. He still has that turnover quirk, which is, you know, the decision-making sometimes is it's kind of like all or nothing, good or bad. But hammer that out in the NHL at this point. It's happening anyways. Yeah. Shelter the minutes, you know, some nights in the press box, whatever you need to do. I, I Iron those kinks out now so you have him ready sooner. The Mexanadian says, after last night, I think it's time uh, to start strongly considering when it's time to bring Edmondson up. The question is, how do you slot him into the lineup with him not being just another body taking up minutes? The Red Wings have several NHL-caliber defensemen and a lot of replaceable NHL defensemen, and they are mostly the same people. Scratch whoever the hell you have to scratch. Get him in there. And if you think that he needs to be paced in and has a really bad game and you want him watching with the bird's eye view for a night or two, great, do it. Awesome. 
back to backs kind of thing and say, hey, you're going to get this matchup. The next night you're going to be out and we want you to, you know, take detailed notes and make some observations and share them with the, our development team. Like you can still learn when you're not in the game. And I, I think, you know, that could be a good approach. Clint Banesh says when it comes to injuries that are intentional or grievous, why doesn't the league go to a one-for-one suspension? Like Marchand on Lilligren, who is not on LTIR, or a headshot like McAvoy on OEL. Has this ever been a discussion with the league? Nope. The Players Association would never allow it. No. And I think the issue comes where, let's say, for let's say the McAvoy situation. Well... OEL is not the player that McAvoy is, and if you keep OEL out for significantly longer than maybe he really has to be out, and then you keep McAvoy off the ice for longer, you can kind of game it that way. But in general, I think the notion of why is a player only getting four games for something that puts a player out for months is a very fair question. Yeah, but there's also so much variance in injury, right? Jamie Ben cross-checks Mark Stone in the head, and Mark Stone doesn't miss a shift. Yeah, he obviously needed to be suspended for that. So it, it is what it is. And then there's some innocent tripping penalties where, you know, guys on a breakaway, you swipe to try you and get throw the your stick. Don't get a penalty. Yeah. Save the game. But yeah, you swipe at him. You catch him in the foot just a little bit. So it's a nothing trip. And he barrels into the post at full speed and shatters his, you know, legs. And now he's out for the season and you're suspended for a season for a trip. Yeah, it's just, there's too much variance. NHL would never go for, as as bad as it sounds, the NHL would never go for it because if they have, okay, I'll use Brad Marchand as the example, out for as long as Lilligren's out, that's lost revenue to the NHL. Oh, totally. As bad as that sounds and, you know, the human impact of injury and the NHL is there to make money and if they're sitting out their stars the same length as someone else who's injured, they're losing money. We have seen the NHL keep stars on the ice when they should have been suspended. Red Wings fans, Duncan Keith. Red Wings fans <laughs> know this with Evgeny Malkin in the instigator. That should have been a textbook suspension in the playoffs. That's what the NHL will do. It's It makes good business sense, but in terms of the actual game, it drives you nuts. Yeah, It's like... You know, the NFL will always, always, always push the rules more towards protecting the quarterback because they're worth the most wins and wins put butts in the seats and butts in the seats is more money. So your quarterback and they're paid like it is worth the most money to your organization. So they're almost always the face of the franchise. 100%. They're the people who always get posted on social media. Yeah, you, you got to protect your assets. I actually think the NFL does a better job of that than the NHL because in the NHL, you know, you have players lighting up Connor McDavid and and slashing and hooking and holding and grabbing. And I think it's gotten a little bit better over time. But in general, your stars who you don't really market that well, but they're really carrying the league on their backs are just getting beat to hell every night. But yeah, and also the NHLPA has fought for a long time and will continue to fight to keep suspensions minimal because yep. a suspension means less pay and less pay is what the players union is there to fight against. Yep. Plain and simple. Kevin Wolf asks, is it time to break up Brad's dream line to try and generate more offense throughout the lineup, including from the top line at five on five? Nope. You don't think it's there yet? Nope. I just, because I don't think there's a recipe. How do I put this? Raymond and DeBrinkin aren't line drivers. 
it wouldn't matter. The, the, we've talked at length about this team's lacking superstars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Dylan Larkin is the only line driver on this team. So it's better to stack him up and we will get the, the runs where they had at the start of the season where they could almost single-handedly carry the offense. I think if you replace, you know, Raymond or Debrinkit with Perron or Rasmussen or Comp or whoever, what you're losing there isn't going to be made up by the gains you'll get below it. Now, I almost think, okay, but could Debrinkit also drive a line a little bit maybe, but you're not pulling him off the top line. His whole thing in Ottawa was he needs top deployment, and that's fair. I'd rather keep something that works or should work not for the past six games, then experiment too early. Raymond, you wonder if at any point in his progression, if he's going to build that aptitude. But I also agree if he's having a good season and he's really kind of working on his game and progressing as you want to see, you, you don't jumble that up if you don't need to. But how long does this go before you change your mind is the question. couple more weeks at least. You see through Thanksgiving and then. Oh, well, yeah, they, had, they were running hot for what? six seven games so you got to give them at least that much to get back okay uh this one from b knight and it's a funny comment but i think it raises a an interesting point it says the larkin mcdavid petterson line is going to be crazy mcdavid's not coming to detroit call that what it is but red wings fans talk a lot about petterson and that's a an elite player a superstar level player who maybe wasn't going to be long for vancouver vancouver's strong start could have massive impacts and a massive ripple effect in terms of deleting a lot of future fun because Pedersen by all rights wasn't convinced that Vancouver could you know quote unquote do the thing and actually be a good team and I don't think anyone predicted this start if they keep this up and they actually have a strong season and Pedersen's convinced and he stays in Vancouver the problem isn't price the problem is just convincing Pedersen to sign somewhere where he is might not win for long enough They'll pay him what they need to pay him. They're, they're not going to get him at a discount. They need to convince him to stay there. And if they're good, that removes a superstar level player out of the market, which no, he wasn't penciled for Detroit, but hey, the chance wasn't zero. And don't go to sleep crying over it because it wasn't, you know, a certainty. But yeah, I think it ruined a, a few, it could ruin a future fun conversation. Anyways, I'm talking about Elias Pettersson in the future, maybe coming to Detroit. So that's probably a good time to, uh, to sign off on this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Folks, thank you so much for tuning in. To all of our listeners, new and old, I promise you we're not always this doom and gloom, but we really, really appreciate you uh, supporting the show, tuning in. And to all of our patrons, it means the world that you you support us. If you want to support the show, again, patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you want to support in another way, leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, uh, Apple, Google, wherever you you catch your shows and uh, subscribe and tell a friend. makes a big difference. To all of our name level supporters on Patreon, thank you so very much. We can't uh, tell you enough. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Samuel Soderholm, Raymond's Missing Tooth, Icon, Brad's Lord and Savior, Bradley Cleveland, Glenn Brabham, Cider the Ass Kicker, Croner's Left Knee. Cider the Ass Kicker is a brand new name level supporter. Welcome. And he has a gift for a logo. Ashley Van Conant, Sea Lion, Jordan Bernaski, Keenan O'Donohue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Carl Brutana Nanaluski, Citizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Connor Scovey, Coyote Season Tickets and Anywhere But Tempe, Craig Kibble, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek and Stamp, DJ Denton, 
D-Town Westside, Exquisitine Buble Schwinslow, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, King Tone, literally one of the players we mentioned in this episode, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K, Cannon Fodder, the Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, Never Go Full Kyle, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Ryan Vargas, Scott Martin, Scree and Lube, That's What I Appreciate's About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, Iser Plan Stan, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, Adam Rose, Andrew Broderick, Axel Sandy Pelica, Big Cheese, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Chuck Buffchest, the Tarpless Goon, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebag Space Force, Connor, Connor Leighton, Corey Perita, Darren Fick, D-Boss Snipshow, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Frank Stanley, Ferk Houston, NHL of Portland Baby, Gene Sullivan, Griffey Boy, Interrupting You to Ask, Huh? James Laporte, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, Derogatory, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, O'Ophelia, Stephen, The Hodag, The Mexinadian, The Hat123, Winging It in San Diego, X, formerly A.A. Ron, and your second favorite patron. Thank you all so very much. We'll be back with you after the next two games on Sunday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.